Well, hey, good morning, River City. Uh, my name is Brad. I am a pastor here at River City Church. Uh, been thinking a lot about uh, lately, like this idea of the unity of the church. And I think I've been thinking about it in a few different ways. Um, one, um, this has just been a season for River City Church, both as a church plant, um, but just in particular as we've moved into a new space where like the partnerships with other churches outside of this church have just been crucial to us. So I've been really thankful for that and the way that um, God ha- has blessed like his church, meaning like the, the big church. We'll talk a little bit about that today through other churches partnering with each other for the sake um, of the gospel going out. So I've been encouraged by that and like the unity um, of our mission and the gospel globally. But then also uh, through this season with like getting uh, moved into this space and uh, doing some renovations here and all of that, like I've just been reflecting on uh, how blessed we've been at River City Church uh, to really just be united in these in these early kind of seasons of being a church plant. And like I don't want to be naive and think that there's not ever going to be places where we're going to be like, man, we have like disagreements or we're trying to work through things. But like, I think that one of the things that really is a blessing about being in and part of a a church plant, a new church that's being formed um, in an area is that there's just this, this like necessary unity that like, um, if you're here and you're around, like one, you know, we need you. (laughs) Like we, we need everyone on the team. That's a part of the team that we're thankful for how God is drawing people into this work that we're doing together of, of forming River City Church that other people might hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be encouraged by the gospel um, ourselves. And, and so like we need everyone to be a part of that mission. And that's really apparent because we're not um, big enough yet that it feels like you can just come and check out. Um, but second, like because um, in this early season we can be so focused um, on our mission and vision, it just kind of breeds within us this unity and kind of pushes marginal things to the side. And so um, I, I just want to tell you that's a way that I've been uh, praising God um, for that unity. And, and I've been encouraged in particular as we're going through First Corinthians and now coming to these passages where we see the disunity in the Corinthian church. I, I'm encouraged for in the season of unity to be able to study these things together that um we're not studying uh first corinthians as like a triage because there's all sorts of division or or the same kind of like corruption or or sin in our body um we're studying it um from a place certainly not of perfection but of getting to continue to learn the kind of church that god wants us to be and that is a church that is united around its mission that, that brings all sorts of people different people from different backgrounds and races and ethnicities together to worship our one true creator job. And so if you want to open your Bible uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we will finish out this chapter that we started uh, last week. Just to give you a little bit um, of where we were last week, in case you weren't here or you need a refresher, um, we're stepping into this section of 1 Corinthians where he is uh, pressing on the Corinthian church uh, for the way that their lack of unity was being displayed in their their corporate gatherings, their worship services, their meals, their small groups together. Um, This was a church that was was marked by disorder, that people were acting in a disorderly way, that things weren't organized, they were confused, as we'll see even more um, in two weeks in chapter 14. Uh, this was a church where there was division. 
based on how much money people made, as we saw uh, in, in chapter 11 with kind of disagreements around communion, that the rich and poor were separate, and there were the haves and have-nots, and, and the haves got to have all this food and drink, and the have-nots came late, and there was nothing left for them. Uh, we saw last week the start of kind of the six weeks that we're doing uh, talking about spiritual giftings and the way that they played into the disunity in the Corinthian church, that there was a, a magnifying of some gifts, in particular around the gift of tongues. There was division in the church. And so that's where we kind of land then in the second half of chapter 12, that, that he's trying to encourage the people, hey, here's where your spiritual gifts come from. Here's why they're good. These are gifts given to you by the Spirit. These are essential things for the church. They are empowered by the Spirit of God. And now uh, in the second half of chapter 12, starting at verse 12, where we'll be today, he tries to express this in a different way and kind of make uh, a secondary point to the Corinthians about what the church is supposed to be. So I'll start reading in uh, verse 12 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, which says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, he says, unity in the local church. This is going to be Paul's illustration for the whole thing. Like, this is the main point. Unity in the local church is supposed to look like a seamless organism, okay? Unity in the local church is supposed to look as seamless, as effortless, as just commonplace as unity in any one individual body or organism. When we look at the natural world and we see a physical being or a plant or a bee like we're invading the lobby earlier. If you came in and you didn't get stung, you already have a reason to praise God today, okay? It was nasty out there. Bees everywhere. Craziness. I was scared. That's why I can't get it out of my brain. I have to talk about it with words, you know. Uh, when you look at the natural world and you see any organism, it's just natural. You look at it and you say, oh, that's a person. Uh, that's a dandelion. That's a, that's a blade of grass. That's a, 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 a wasp. Like we look at it and we see the thing. He says, that's how the local church should be. When I look at the local church, I shouldn't see individual pieces or parts of it. I shouldn't look at this body and say, oh, 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 yeah, that's, that's Sarah. No, I should look at it and say, no, that's, that's River City Church. It's one thing. It's a body. It's unified. That's the illustration that Paul is going to use here, and he's going to lean really heavily into it. He says, just as the body is one, it has many members, verse 12, and all the members of the body, though many, they are one body. He says, so it is with Christ. In Christ, he's saying this has happened. So he's going to give this illustration. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And he says, in one spirit, you were all baptized. Now, a little bit different disagreement here of if we're talking about the Holy Spirit or if we're just talking about Jesus in the sense of one spirit, he's saying in one person. Um, some people would even make the argument that like parts of this lean towards God the Father, so you have kind of this Trinitarian thing going here. Uh, it, it doesn't matter because the thing that he's really trying to lean into, he's saying there's, there's unity here. The, the, the church as a whole, he says, it was, in, it was through one God, one spirit. It was through this one God in which you were baptized. You weren't baptized into Paul, as he said earlier. You weren't baptized into Apollos. He's made this illustration, or Cephas, before. He says, you were baptized in the name of one spirit. You were baptized because of your belief in Jesus. He says, in that baptism, you were baptized into one body. 
It says, when you took on your faith, when you were baptized in your faith, uh, this illustration of crossing from life to death, of being uh, dunked into water and coming out. He says, in this illustration, in this actual baptism of the Spirit, what happens when you believe in Jesus, when you trust, put your faith in God, that his death paid for your sin, that his resurrection brought you life, that he now sits in heaven and he holds your destiny and your sonship or daughtership before God in his hand. That in that action, you passed from life to death in a very real way. And this is the baptism of the Spirit. And the Bible indicates that in that moment, we literally then are indwelled by the Spirit of God. That the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. That we are uh, corporately, as the church, we act like the Old Testament temple. That, that the Spirit of God literally dwells in us. And so he says, in this one Spirit in whom you were baptized, when you stepped into faith, you then were, proceed, you were then, uh, placed into, entered into this one body. That you became one thing, and he also here is referencing, as he said a verse before, the body of Christ. Well, we talked at length uh, a few weeks ago in that sermon on communion about how in Christ we have been become, we are, are, are a part of the body of Christ, that, that in our faith in Jesus, we now actually are a, a part, we are united with Christ, that we were united in that death, and that's why it paid for our sin, that we were united in his resurrection, and that's why we have this glimmer of new life, and that we someday will be united in his glorification, and we will be with God. And we won't have sin anymore. And we will reflect more and more uh, this person of Jesus who now is in us, reflected by God the Holy Spirit. Is in one spirit you are baptized into one body. And then he, he makes this aside here. And it's important. He says this, this is a race. There's a lot of boundaries, right? He says in this one spirit, into this body that you are baptized, there's now neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no Greeks anymore. There's no Jews anymore. There's no Persians anymore. He, he's using this, uh, this kind of wide-sweeping thing, uh, these kind of two huge big categories to say, uh, now your race doesn't matter in the same way it used to matter. Now, now Paul's not stupid, right? He knows how the practical world works. And, and our goal when we talk about race in the church is not to be an idiot about it, right? Not to be like, oh, race doesn't matter anymore. I'm a believer, right? I don't see this. We don't see division. We're one in Christ. Paul's not trying to downplay the actual reality in their day. Instead, he's trying to call it to mind. He's trying to say, look, this is how extreme the unity that we find in the gospel is. That this thing that is just incomprehensible to them, right? Jews and Gentiles, like as far apart as two things can be in their minds. He's saying these two things that are completely separate, even though there's different background there, even though there's different experience there, he's saying in the gospel they are one. He's not trying to dissolve or ignore the tension that exists there. He's not trying to say it doesn't matter anymore, but he's trying to say it's principally not what identifies them anymore. That he is making an argument that there is a drastic shift to oneness when we believe in the truth of the gospel. Not only does he say there are not Jews or Greeks anymore, he says there's not slaves or free, haves or have-nots. Uh, slaves in this day were, were generally um, those who had become impoverished or indebted, who had given their lives over to the service to make up for the fact that they couldn't pay for their debt or they didn't have means, uh, versus those who were free were either those who were able to buy themselves out of freedom because of their means or never had any relationship to that kind of indentured servitude because of their wealth and means. He says there's not slave or free anymore. 
He says, this tears down all the lines. And so he says, when you think about the local church, when you think about the church globally, he says, think about it as one thing. Not something divided by uh, what they could bring to this big communion meal. Not something divided by uh, who their parents were or what they looked like in any way, shape, or form. Just from one spirit, we were baptized into one body. And he says, and all of us were made to drink of one spirit. Now, this is a confusing phrase, but, but Paul clearly in the context here is using this to remind their Corinthians that their spiritual gifting, that their special, these uh, grace gifts, as we defined it last week, that these abilities, that these talents came from, directly from the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think he's referencing other things, too, because we just talked about communion a few weeks ago. I don't think he's trying to make a direct association between the communion meal and the filling of the Spirit. But I think he's trying to use all kind of these combined images to make this point to them that their church should not be divided by the thing that is the very symbol of their unity. That this one spirit in whom they were baptized, that this uh, one body that they became a part of, that this one spirit that they now drink of or partake in or are filled with. He says that the filling of the spirit, the way that those gifts play out in your lives, that should not be a thing that divides you. That's just opposite of it definitionally. There's some debates on how to translate these verses as a whole. Um, some of the Greek here is a little bit difficult, but I think what's interesting is that the call of the passage is really clear. And, and uh, one commentator, I think it was D.A. Carson, when he was writing about this, uh, said, like, there, there's been so much work trying to figure out what, what it means that it's one spirit, what it means that it's one body, what it means to drink of one spirit, that we ignore the fact that he says the word one three times. Um, and, and God, when he inspired the writing of the Bible, I think it is a lot like a, a human dad in this, that like, uh, I, I hope my kids are learning, like, man, if I say something more than once, I really mean it, right? Like, I'm like, don't kick your sister, don't kick your sister, don't kick your sister! Like, I only increase in volume when I say things over and over again. No one says things multiple times and gets quieter, right? Like, Paul's point here, the point that God's trying to make through Paul is that they are one. Because that's the very thing that was tearing the Corinthians apart, is that they weren't acting like one. There was division based on their race. There was division based on their socioeconomic background. There was division even based on how they were gifted. He says, you're, you're one. Now, how do they become one? How do they become one? What, what makes them one? Well, he prefaces this whole thing saying, uh, though there are many, they are one body, so it is with Christ. That the unity of the local church does not become, it's not come because we have the same uh, preferences. Um, it's not because we like the worship style of the body that we're a part of. It's not because we're all watching the same TV shows. Uh, clearly here, it's not because uh, our skin is the same color. It's not because we drive the same type or class of vehicles. Um, our, our, our unity is not even found inherently in our beliefs, but instead our unity comes from the very fiber of our existence as Christians. That as a believer, yes, what you believe and think is important. And yes, our doctrine is what unites us practically as we know what we believe together. But what really unites us is that when we believed in Jesus, when the gospel told, took hold of our lives, that it changed your identity. And so you don't have any choice anymore. And so if you're a person, if you've been uh, kind of uh, in the Christian sphere, um, you probably know of people that have said like, yeah, like I'm just going to be a Jesus kind of Christian, right? 
Like, I don't, I don't, I don't need the church. I don't need the church. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be around that kind of thing. Um, and so I'm just going to have this spiritual relationship, just me and Jesus. And they say it. They usually have big smiles, these people, which people with big smiles always bother me a little bit. Like they're hiding something, right? They're hiding something. You're not that happy. No one's that happy. Go outside. It's terrible. Like, you're not that happy. Okay? That was down. I'll have a sip of coffee. Okay? We'll bring this back. Just me and Jesus. I mean, this passage negates that overall. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus without a relationship with the local church. This says that the church of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, the church is the body of Christ. And so essentially what you're saying is I will just cut the head off of this thing and I'll have a relationship with this severed head, but I'll leave the body over here because I don't like it very much. That's absurd. You can't have a relationship with Jesus without a relationship with his body. You can't have a relationship with Jesus without a part in the local church. The Bible is clear that we are all, if we are believers, if we have trusted in the truth of the gospel, you are a part of the church. And we're using church in the big way here. That's not just us. Uh, that's our partners uh, across uh, Michigan who have helped us plant this church. Um, that's, our, that's our brothers and sisters uh, all across the United States. Uh, that's our brothers and sisters all across the world. Uh, even to really blow your mind, I mean, the global church is made up of everyone who has ever trusted in Jesus. So every believer that came before you, every hero of the faith, um, every uh, Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther King Jr., um, every Christian who you don't even know the name of or even who they breathed or how they lived, someday you will see that you're absolutely, totally connected with them because you and they are the same. They're a part of the body of Christ because the very fiber of their being has been changed. They have been united to, they have become a part of, Jesus. And so we're called to be a part of this global church, but Paul here is also specifically making a call to the Corinthians to be a part of their local church. Paul is making this argument that the big church, that truth about the big church and their unity overall, that we all go, oh, that's beautiful. He's saying, oh, this unity should play out on a small scale in the local church. He's going to use this word over and over again, member. He's going to use this word over and over, member, uh, referring to the individual parts of the local church. Uh, he's trying to bring some definition to saying, hey, here's what your role is if you are a part of the local church. And I do think, uh, oh, this is not a direct implication here of this passage. Uh, I don't mean this to be a defense um, of this premise, but this does kind of call into question, well, how do we decide who's a part of the local church, right? And for us, the way that it has become commonplace in our culture and really uh, throughout the, the last decades of Christian history is to say that, that membership in a local church, taking part in, calling yourself a part of a local church is an elective thing. That, that you do, you get to choose which local body, which small expression of the big body of Christ you should be a part of. And it's important for local churches to know who's a part of their body, Right? Because not just do we need to know um, who sees themselves as a part of it, but, but I think we, uh, as leaders of the local church, uh, we are given uh, a responsibility and a privilege to care for the people who are a part 
of the local church. And so I don't have a date for you yet, but we are in this next couple months going to launch a formal membership here at River City Church. And I don't want that to scare you in any way. I also wanted to disappoint you. Like, you're not going to get, like, a name badge or a card. We just don't have the budget um, for those kind of credentials. Uh, so if that's why you were here and you're like, I've been walking around this place for a year waiting for my business cards. I'm sorry. I kind of had business cards, but they're, like, wrong because I ordered them a long time ago and our phone number changed. So not even, no, none of us have business cards, even if you work here. Okay. But we are going to launch formal membership at River City Church, and that's going to um, involve a few different things. That's going to involve a, a, a class structure that will either be um, kind of on one weekend or across a couple weekends where we want you to understand um, and be on the same page about kind of the essentials of our theology. Uh, we want to be really clear about how we're unique um, as a local church. Um, we want to understand uh, how it is that we're going to live together. Um, what's going to be an open-handed issue for us as a church that we're going to say, hey, we can, we can disagree on this, um, and it's not going to divide us as a local body. We're not going to uh, kind of plant our flag on these issues. And we want you to know um, what is a closed-handed issue where we'd say this is um, what we're going to say is orthodoxy for us and not going to shift uh, or change even amongst our membership. Uh, we'll be unified under a, a covenant, which is just a, a fancy way of saying we're going we're gonna to sign something and make promises to each other. Um, hopefully this covenant will help us love each other and support each other, pursue our mission and vision together. And so um, I want you to pay attention. Uh, we have a meeting uh, later this afternoon with kind of our uh, core senior leadership here at River City Church, and we're going to set a date for when membership is going to happen. And I'm going to post that on social media this week. Um, I want to encourage you that, that if you consider this to be your church, that, that identifying yourself as a part of the local church is just a good thing and I think will be a blessing to you. Um, you're not required to do it. Um, if you become a member, it doesn't increase your rights or privileges here in any uh, way. It gives you more responsibility. Um, that it's you saying, this is my family. This is where I want to be all in because you see it as important to identify um, as a part of a local expression of the body of Christ. So we'll answer a lot more questions. You can proceed through that membership stuff um, just because you want to and you want to learn about it. There's no like forcing in at the end of that. But I want you to know that's coming because that's going to be part of how uh, we, we will define ourselves. We will identify who's a part of this body. Uh, so back to our passage in verse 14 here. Paul's now going to give this lengthy um, illustration. It's actually one of my uh, favorite illustrations um, in all the Bible because it's long and it's just good. So I'm going to read uh, the whole thing, uh, verse 14 through 26. I'll read you now. It says this. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to this hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul says, just as our physical bodies are inseparable from each other, that's how the local church is too. Just as our physical bodies are inseparable from each other, that is how the local church is too. And so he lays out two different scenarios here. Uh, The first is this. So the first scenario is that there is a member of the body declaring that because of how it was made, what it is, who its identity is, that it's not truly a part of the body. Uh, Apparently there were some members of the church who were downplaying their gifting and roles rather than seeing them as crucial. Now, in the illustration that Paul gives, um, it's really easy to see this idea of a part of the body uh, frustrated at its role, thinking its role isn't important. Like, it's easy to see that as absurd. And like, don't don't miss the fact that like this illustration, it, it's funny, right? It, it's humorous. It's it's stupid. It's absurd. That's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to say to the Corinthians, the way that you're operating, the idea that a part of the body, the idea uh, that a part of your body, um, that your foot would say oh bemoan me I'm not a hand that's stupid right even the idea of pretending a foot can talk I'm like I don't like this right this is a stupid children's novel like I don't even like this illustration in that way right you see this is absurd the idea that a part of the body would say oh because my function is different than this part of the body I don't I don't think I'm really a part I don't think I'm really important. I don't think I matter in any way. Like, we know that's ridiculous. But I think this plays out in the church in in two really real ways. Um, First is an envy and discouragement. Um, This is when a person really believes that their gifting is important. Um, Maybe that's because of envy, because you really wish you could do something else. You're just not happy um, with the way that God has built you. You're not happy with the way that God has gifted you. You think, man, if I could only be like X, Y, Z. If I could only uh, be able to do what they do, and usually this is particularly fixated on one person, and, and usually the way it plays out, like envy usually does, is it starts with like admiration and then it moves to anger, right? And this is how it is for me every time I see someone who drives a Tesla. At first I'm like, oh, I wish I could drive a Tesla, and then I look at him like, that jerk doesn't deserve a Tesla. Like, why didn't God make me rich? I would have been so good at it, right? <laughs> envy is a funny thing. Like it really quickly moves from admiring it to being angry about it. And so I think it plays out in that way in envy. I think it also plays out in discouragement. You're just frustrated. Maybe it's because like you're not even sure how you were built or gifted. I think in the local church that can be really common that because we're not encouraging people, um, we're, not, we're not constantly saying, hey, you are needed. The way that God built you is essential for this place. Uh, that You don't really dig into like, hey, what am I good at? Like, what do I have to offer in this place? Because no one's just telling you that, that you, you are required, that the scripture says you are essential, that you must plug in here. You must, if you're a part of a local body, you must use your gifts or you're hurting the local body. And so maybe you've never been told like you need to think about yourself in that way. And so the way that plays out, you just think you're not gifted at all. You just think, I don't have anything to offer. And that gets discouraging. And I think for people like this, often they just start to fade away um, from the local church because they, they think they're not needed. And like, no matter if you like, um, like, you're like, well, I don't have time. I don't really want to serve or, or you don't know how you serve. I think all of us like have this desire, like we want to be needed. 
We want to know that, that there's a part for us in a thing that we're stepping into. So I think envy and discouragement can play into this, um, and I think that that happens sometime. Um, I think more commonly, though, the way that this plays out is a little bit more subtle. I mean, that's the, the, I think there are giftings that we think are as essential in the local body, and I think mainly that's because those giftings play into what we do um, when we kind of have our weekly gatherings together, or even our smaller gatherings um, in homes, our city groups throughout the week. Uh, things like teaching and leading in worship, um, even greeting by the doors and just being loving and encouraging to people. Um, there, there are giftings like these that we see as essential. And so the way that that plays out is that if you knew um, that we had a deficit in area, let's, let's say we had no one uh, to play the drums, and you're like, I know we have no one to play the drums, but, but you know like there's someone in the local church that plays the drums. And you're like, I know that that kid can beat a drum, right? It's not that hard. I did it this week. It was a couple sticks, couple feet. Big deal. It's impossible. Like, you know someone has that gifting and can do that thing. You'd be kind of irked by it, right? You'd be kind of frustrated. You're like, man, our, our church has this need. You have the time. You have the skills. You have the ability, and you're holding it back. And you'd be frustrated with that person. And so the way that I think this plays out is that we, we'd be all a little frustrated. We'd be all a little, I wrote miffed in my notes, and that's not a word I say, but I'm going to say it. You'd be miffed, wouldn't you? Like, you'd be a little miffed. I'm going to start using that more often. kind of sounds like a bad word because you don't hear it. Let me wash your mouth. My pastor said miffed this week. But here's the thing. Like when you choose to sit on the sidelines and you say, well, what I can do is not really that important. It's okay for me to pull back because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really see a need for what I can do. I don't really know what I can do right now. When you sit on the sidelines in this way, when you don't participate in, in that way, you're doing the same thing that that drummer's doing by not participating. That what you're saying is that there's not a need for your gifts, even though everyone around you can perceive, the, perceive that there is. And the truth is that, that what this passage says is that God built the local church in one way that's really encouraging. God built the local church and he gave it everything that it needed in the people that were there. And that's really encouraging because you're like, wow, look how God has equipped the local church. But the flip side of that is God built the local church. He gave it every gifting it needed in the people that were there. And so if you don't participate with your gift, you have removed something that God gave to the local church so that it could function well. I don't care who you are or what you're good at, if you are a believer and you're a part of this church or you're a part of another church and you're not serving and you're gifting, you are withholding. You are saying, because I'm not gifted in this way, I'm not really essential to this body. Plays out a little bit more subtly. And so this was happening in the Corinthian church. There were people that just thought, my gifting's not that important. I'll just sit on the sidelines. Some of them were probably discouraged, um, envious. Um, but the other flip side of what was happening in Corinth um, is a little bit more uh, kind of pernicious and a little bit more um, 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 just absolutely aggravating, really, for me, is that in the church, uh, there were people in the church who were instead saying the opposite. They were saying, hey, because your gifting is different than mine, you don't belong here. And that's what Paul is really riled up about in, in this whole section of 1 Corinthians. Uh, that he's really riled up that there were people in the church making this claim that because other people were not gifted in the same public ways or the same uh, uh, kind of spiritually um, profound or impressive ways that they were gifted, they weren't needed, they weren't as important, and it didn't really matter if they were there. The, the truth here, the point of this section, the second point of this is that the church has to fight to equally value the gifts of every member, even if they're less public. 
We must fight to equally value the gifts of every single member of the local body, even if they are less public gifts. So in Corinth, what was happening is that people that didn't have these flashy gifts, and tongues was the one that was kind of chief among them all, say this played in with prophecy and teaching as well, that the people that had those public gifts were in some way treating themselves like a group of elites and excluding the people that didn't have those gifts, criticizing them and saying, you should really try and be gifted like us. You should try and pressure yourself to have this in your life. Maybe you should even try and fake this so that you can look like us because real Christians, real essential members of the local body, they look like me. And that was dangerous and wrong. But again, in terms of the body metaphor, this is ridiculous, as Paul points out. He says, look, you can't say, the hand can't say to the eye, I have no need of you just because you're weaker. And like, if you have any doubt, like, eyes are weak. Um, find someone that you love, a significant other, a child maybe that you love, and just give them a little poke in the eye right later, right? Eyes are really weak. It doesn't take anything. Like, there is no other part of your body that can be injured by an eyelash, right? No other part of your body. Like, you're driving a car, and there's an eyelash in your eye, game over, right? Pull over the car, I'm crying, I can't get it out, I'm like, I need help, I need help, don't touch it, but touch it. Like, get it, your eyes are weak. This is, your hand can't say to your eye, oh, because you're weak, you're not important. In fact, he says, the parts of the body that are weak, like your eyes, the parts that are sensitive, they're some of the most important parts of your body. I mean, think about the brain. I mean, think about what, what more core of a function, the, the powerhouse, the computer of your whole body, and how sensitive to blood loss or a little bit of pressure or a cut or a bruise. Essential to your body are some of these weaker parts. So you can't look at the local church and think, hey, hey, that person has a gift that seems weaker, not as powerful, and so it's not important. And then he makes like the funniest thing. <laughs> I'm going to try not to get in trouble here or get fired today, okay? But he says, like, think about those parts of your bodies that require greater modesty, right? We don't have that many children. He's like, even if you're a butt, you're important. That's what he says, okay? He says, like, even those parts of your bodies, and he, I mean, he really is, like, to get down to the degree, like, he is talking, I think, about, like, genitalia and, like, sexual organs here. He's saying, even those parts of your body that you would say, these should be kept in secret, he says, even those God has bestowed a lot of honor and glory on. Think even those parts of you that you would think, man, I don't even want to talk about that. I don't want to show that. And I don't know who he's pointing at in the Corinthian church in this way. And like, be careful that you don't make this illustration too silly that you miss the point. I, I don't know who he's comparing in this way. But, but it seems that he indicates that there were people in the body that these people were saying, look, you're lowly. You're not important. We should cover you up and put you away. And that is like... That's devastating to me. But man, that happens, doesn't it? Like, I mean, I, I, I want things to run well on the weekend. Like, I, I want people to walk in and feel warm and welcome here. And I, there's a lot of things uh, that I want to do to make sure they have a good experience. But like, man, far be it from me or you that we would ever hide parts of our body and say, you're not presentable, and so we can't put you in this way. Because he's not talking about sin here. Like there are instances in the old church where people can't serve in certain ways because they have sin. And that would reflect badly on the body. I mean, he literally tells them that earlier. He's saying, hey, there's somebody in your body with rampant sexual immorality. And so they, they can't be a part of this thing anymore. He's not talking about somebody who's been put out for sin. He's talking about somebody who's been put out for shame. They look different. Their gifting is different. And he's saying, 
you're shaming this person and saying they're not important and they're a part of your body. They're a part of your body. Now, to be completely honest, I think my first tendency is to misapply this passage. And so I, th I think what my first tendency is to go, okay, let's make sure we find all those, those like behind the scene gifts. Like let's find those people who are like super introverted, but they're like really encouraging one-on-one. -on -one. Um, let's find those people who are like just like servants and they don't want to be up front at all, but like, man, they will be here at like 6 a.m. every week and they will set up chairs. And so let's set up systems and ways so we make sure we platform and honor those people. Let's get them up here. Let's make sure that everyone gets equivalent honor. And I actually made this illustration um, at our small group and like Rob called me out and said, I don't think that's a good application of the passage. And he was totally right. Because the application of this passage isn't to say that everyone needs to have the same kind of public honor. The application of this passage is to say that the public honor that is naturally received because some giftings are more uh, pronounced publicly does not mean that that's how we assign value to them. Let me say that in a different way. Just because someone's gifting looks essential to you just because someone's gifting, you like to hear it, it makes you laugh, it's physically pleasing, it makes you comfortable, means, does not mean that you get to value that gifting more than the gifting that you feel like you could do without. Paul says every single part of the body, every single member and their gifting is equivalently valuable and important and necessary. Even if some or in a place where the honor, the, the, the prestige, the presence of them seems more attractive than others. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to do some of that, right? It's not, not wrong, or it's not um, um, sinful, or in any way against what this passage says, that we would offer honor to those people. But we don't want to do the reverse and just say that the goal is to continue hanging out more honor. Because what Paul's trying to point them to is this, that he'll start to talk about in 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer to all of those is no. Everyone doesn't have the same gift. Everyone doesn't heal. Everyone doesn't speak in tongues. Everyone doesn't prophesy. He's trying to boil down to this truth. The church has been gifted differently. The members of the church have been made uniquely. And that's beautiful. Like, think, think to the illustration again. Is there anything more magnificent and just more mind-blowing than, like, the way that, like, biological life works. Like, when you think about the system that is the way that God made you, it's just nuts, right? Your body can eat a hamburger and turn it into thoughts. That's crazy. Some of us clearly more complex thoughts than others, right? Your body takes food and uses it to keep you warm. Uses it for fuel so you can move around. Like two humans can make another human. That's mind-blowing. I, I love like I love like with our kids like how like you've got like the uh, like the, the earth videos and like all these stuff just just for them to get like these little glimpses of like how crazy nature is. 
how these things work together, how they've been built, just to marvel at the system that they are. And so what Paul's trying to get you to do is to look at the fact that you're different. And to look at the people around you and how different they are from you and the way that he's gifted and built them and just be like, whoa, look how this thing just works. And so he wants you to marvel at that and he wants you to see how you can't remove any peace from it. That the beauty of that organism, that the function of it is damaged if not destroyed if you start to take pieces out of it. And you're like, well, that's not true. Like, uh, uh, that's not true. Like, the local church functions all the time without everybody serving. Things happen every weekend, even if I don't plug in. There's still music, there's still teaching, there's still coffee, whatever. That's not true. If you think that it's not true, that the body needs you to function, then you don't understand the function of the body. If you think that the body can function without you, if you think that the body can function without someone else in this room, who's a believer, who's a part of this body, then you don't understand what the body is up to. You don't understand how the system works because what we have been trained is to think, well, as long as all the creature comforts are there, as long as they can put on a service, as long as like, the slides moderately match what's being sung, like, okay, it's passable, we've done church. Paul is not trying to encourage them to make sure they have all the pieces in place so they have a good church service. He's not trying to recruit more people to serve in River City Kids. He's not trying to make sure that the coffee gets made every single week or that the lawn gets mowed. He is not concerned with the business of church and the function of church. He is concerned with the transmission of the truth of the gospel. And here's the truth, that if you're not plugged in, if you're not on mission, if you don't see yourself as essential, there are people that only you know that will never hear about Jesus because God put you in their lives. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. And we can have an argument about, well, if God intended... Sorry, that's not how Scripture speaks to it. Scripture says that God placed you there in His sovereignty. And wants to move you. Wants Scripture to change your mind. To tell you, you are essential to share the gospel with that person. That you are the one that He called and placed to encourage that person. That you are the one to pick up the piece of trash. That you should step in and play in the band. That you should serve in kids. That you should join hospitality. He is telling you, you are essential. That whether you go to a church of 10,000 people or a church of 25 people, that you are equally needed and you have no right to check out. And I don't care if you join and become a member here or if you find the biggest church in town or the smallest church in town. It doesn't matter. You're needed. If you don't think you're needed, you don't get the point of the body. But the task is huge. Like, let's just talk about Grand Rapids. If we just trust the census... There are at least 500,000 people that don't know Jesus in Kent County, in the greater Grand Rapids metro. 500,000 people. In this state, likely four to six million people that don't know Jesus. The job is huge, but the body is beautiful. The job is mind-blowing, is discouraging even. But the way that God has provided for it is amazing. He's built it. He's built it to work together. He's built it to function perfectly. He's built every part of it with a purpose in mind and a beautiful role to play. Even the parts that are weak. Even the parts that are embarrassing. He's built you to be a part of it. So how do we, how do we step out of this? Just two quick questions. Are you going to commit to a body? Are you going to commit 
to giving your all to the mission of Jesus in the local context in which he's placed you? Are you going to believe that your gifting is essential and not let envy or discouragement seep in into how he's built you? Commit to giving your all. I guarantee you it'll be a blessing to you. Like I guarantee you that God has built you for it to be a joy even when these things are hard. Even when it takes some of your precious time or your resources or whatever. He's built you that way. That you only function when you step into your role as a part of a local body. Uh, two, we've got to push ourselves as a church. We've got to push ourselves as leaders in this church. This is a call to me that we must value and pursue our entire body being engaged. No matter what our size is, no matter what our perceived needs are, we must push that all of our people are engaged, that all of them see themselves as essential, that we are constantly asking them to fulfill their role because the church as a whole demands it and because their lives need it too. Uh, when we talk about membership and, and what's going to come up, uh, like I said, there's going to be a, a covenant that's a part of this membership. And a lot of things in that covenant are, are just expressions of this passage. That, that when we covenant to each other, we promise that we will fulfill our roles in the body. That we promise that, that like, as leaders of this church, that we won't lie to you and tell you that you're not essential. I was talking with a, a buddy earlier uh, who's a part of our body. and We were talking about membership and talking about the covenant and, like, what was in it and like how we were going to like proceed with a few of those things. Um, and, and it was interesting just as we talked about how much we realized like what's important is, is whether or not we understand the spirit of a document like that. Yeah, you can read a document like a covenant and you can think, uh-oh, these are the rules. These are the things that they're going to cut me, come and get me on. These are the things where they really value them as important. You can read it as a set of rules and obligations that are intended to be chains around you. Um, or you can read it as a statement of how incredibly important and beautiful you are. You can read it as a statement of commitment from the leaders of this church, from the pastors of this church, and the other people that God has called to serve in the way that they are gifted, to tell you constantly that we will not let you discourage or burn out or tell yourself that you're not important because you are. And we won't let others magnify themselves and say they are more important. There's no role here at River City that is so essential that somebody can treat other people like a jerk and pretend they're not important so they can fulfill their role. And there's been way too much of that from people in my role in particular, to be completely honest, right? And I mean, this plays out week in and week out. Like, how do we function on a Sunday morning? Are people who, who are going to uh, be in the band, people who um, are going to preach on stage, are they too busy to shake somebody's hand? Are they too busy uh, to stop and pray with somebody? And like, do practical realities play in? Yeah. Do we need to be careful about being legalistic on even this? Yeah. But, but ultimately, let's be really cautious that those principles are true. That we are loving, open, and accessible, whether we have public gifts or private gifts. That every single member of this body sees themselves as completely essential to the true function of our body, to our mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel to our city and to ourselves. Let's pray. God, we need your help in this um, because we have temptation even in this moment to say, not me, not me. What I have doesn't matter. I don't have the time to offer how God has made me. If other people could only be more like me, if those people would get up and work as hard as I do, that our hearts want to run to all the finger-pointing, 
and not the embracing of this beautiful truth. So God, help us even now, especially as we proceed to the table. God, as we hold the bread that expresses our oneness in you. God, as we take the cup that changed our lives because it entered us into your promise. The blood shed that our sin would be paid for, that we could be called children of God. God, let these things communicate and encourage us in the fact that we are essential. Because we have all drank of the same spirit. We've entered into the same body. And we've been baptized in your name, Lord. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.